RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Live Bold and Boss Up with yours truly, Stefan Ash. Guys, today we sit down with Cameron Johnson. If you don't know him, you got to know him. CameronJohnson.com. He is, he's an amazing individual. We had to have him on. Thank you, Kyle, who's on here as well. Kyle Warren, he introduced us to an amazing individual and always appreciate those amazing introductions to wonderful people. Cameron was an entrepreneur at age nine and made his first millions as a teenager. Um, He wrote a book and the book is called You Call the Shots. I now have to read that book. 100%. 100%. And he was also a board member of a Japanese company at age 15. Just, just amazing stuff. So in the conversation, he like dives into all of these companies that he created and you can hear the learning process as he's telling you about all of these new companies. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. If you have kids, I would absolutely encourage you to listen to this podcast with them. I don't think we swear. It's a clean <laughs> one and it's just really inspiring. No, it's amazing. Like I I wanted to to sit here for like 5 hours and had him have him talk more cuz I was like, "Ooh, I like I don't think that way and I wish I did." Just that like mind power. It's right. amazing. Right. So anyway, take a listen. Start from the beginning because I think Kyle got me all excited because he was like, oh my gosh, Cameron made his first million when he was like a teenager. I'm like, what? Like, how, how did you start? Like, why were you an entrepreneur so early and you just kept going? Like, tell us about that. So I started my first business, business, if you will, when I was nine and it was a printing business, just printing greeting cards, stationary. And I had, um, for Christmas that year, I got a computer and a printer and I was playing around and I showed my mom, hey, look, I can print these invitations that I just taught myself how to do. And she said, well, that's great. You can print them for a party your dad and I are having. And I simply said, sure, if you pay me. Um, And so that was my first sale. And on the back of those greeting cards or invitations said printed by Cameron Johnson. And I had to have a name for my business. So it was Cheers and Tears uh, Printing Company. So we could print happy cards or sad cards. And so it was Cheers and Tears Printing Company. And everybody that came to the party knew that you know, at the time, this was novel. Uh, you know, this is nearly 30 years ago now. I'm 37. But um, my uh, everybody that came to the party knew that the Johnson's, you know, son printed these invitations. And that led to more orders and more business and more sales. And so that was my very first business. And um, I did that selling greeting cards, stationary business cards, to basically the neighborhood. It's almost like door-to-door selling as a kid. And um I probably got a lot of sales um, out of guilt, um, only because they wanted to support the you know kid that was hustling. Um, and so works. when I was ten, um, I convinced my mom that it wasn't professional for my customers to have to write a check to my parents. My parents cash the check and give me the cash. So I convinced my parents to help me set up a checking account. When I was ten, <laughs> and that was really when I um, started my businesses from there on. That's, That's awesome. hilarious. I love that. If my child came to me and was like, mom, it's not professional to have someone write you a check <laughs> for me. I would, I'd be like, yeah, okay. 
Let's do this. So that was your first company at nine. So after that, like what, like, what did you do from there? Like, were you always like, you always had that entrepreneurial mindset? I was an entrepreneurial mindset and I always started reading. I knew I wasn't going to grow up and be an actor or an athlete or, uh, you know, any of those kinds of things. So I knew I was going to somehow go into the business world. And then it was just a matter of, am I going to work for myself or am I going to work for somebody else? And I started reading business biographies um, as a kid. And when I was nine, I read Donald Trump's Art of the Deal. And I started reading uh, Direct from Dell, which was Michael <laughs> Dell's book about how he got started in college. And wow. if you fast forward, you look at Bill Gates, he started in college. If you look at Mark Zuckerberg, he started in college. If you look at Richard Branson, he didn't graduate high school. Um, so I looked at all these successful entrepreneurs and they all started young. And the difference for them versus me was that now I was growing up with a computer, which they didn't necessarily have until they were in college. So I felt like age didn't really matter. Um, and so the printing business was, quote unquote, a success for the couple of years that I did it. But it was never more than me making a few thousand dollars, which was enough to buy my own new computer or new printer or upgrade you know, my, my uh, business, if you will. But I was always spending my own money to do it and always felt rewarding. Um, at the time, you would go into, you'd go to the mall and you would go to, you know, you'd buy the software for these different, you know, programs. And at the time it was a story, this is really going to be a throwback called Babbage's. And you would go to Babbage's and I was, you know, 10 now or 11 at the time. And I would literally write a check because I had my own checking account and I would pay for the software out of my, you know, little checking account. And it wasn't until I was 11 um, when there was a huge craze, and this is the mid nineties called Beanie Babies. And so my sister had a collection of Beanie Babies. She's six years younger. So she would have been five at the time. And I said, Claire, how about I buy these Beanie Babies from you? And there were maybe 20 or 30 Beanie Babies. But I said, I'll give you $100. $100 to a five-year-old is, you know, like a million. And so I listed those Beanie Babies on eBay. And five days later, they sold for $1,000. But I immediately made $900, uh, you know, basically doing nothing but off my sister. And I have paid her back since then, so I can tell the story. Um, But um, my, my idea then was, well, I'm out of Beanie Babies. Forget the printing business. It takes a lot of time and a lot of work. This is a lot easier. I don't have to go door to door. I don't have to talk to anybody. I can, if I can get more Beanie Babies, I can sell them on the internet. And so I typed a letter to Thai Incorporated, based in Oak Park, Illinois, and didn't tell them my age. I just said, um, to whom it may concern, I'm the president of Cheers and Tears Printing Company. We're interested in selling your Beanie Babies over the internet. Please send more information. It was as simple as that. And they sent back basically an order form. And all of a sudden, I can now buy these Beanie Babies at wholesale, which is $2.50. Retail was $5. And, um, you know, my first minimum order was 2,000 Beanie Babies. So that's $5,000 at two fifty. dollars And so I remember it was literally my life savings. And I didn't tell my parents. I always learned that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> um, but um, I, I basically mailed a check for $5,000. I ordered 2,000 Beanie Babies. A couple of weeks goes by. I come home from school one day and there's massive boxes at the front door. And my mom, you know, says, what have you ordered or what have you done? <laughs> I was like, Oh, this is my new business. I'm going to be selling Beanie Babies now. And she said, it's your money wasted if you want. And, um, I sold out those first 2000 Beanie Babies in the first month. And then I ordered 3000 and sold those and then 4,000. And they got to the point where I was stocking 5,000 Beanie Babies in my parents' basement. And I was paying my dad now $75 a month rent for this closet in a basement that you know wasn't being used. And um, at the end of that year, um, when I was 12, I made $50,000 selling Beanie Babies. And so that was when I 
hired my first attorney and he's been my attorney now for 25 years and he's been through a lot of different businesses and a lot of growth and he's still with me. And, um, that was when I filed my first tax return when I was 12. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. I can only imagine I the conversations you've had with your lawyer over the last 25 years. <laughs> he's, he's seen, he's seen it all. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. I was in his office. We did a real estate deal last week and, um, yeah, we, we always have some some flashbacks. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. And then you wrote your first book at 15. And I'm sure a lot went on between 12 and 15. You probably had like, you know, five other companies and sold well, thousands of the, Beanie Babies. It's funny because the Beanie Baby business was like obviously a great success. And that wasn't anything I did. I didn't invent the Beanie Babies. I just hustled them online. But um, I was then going to head into middle school and... I never told anybody about my businesses. So the last thing I wanted to do is be a sixth grader and for word to get out that he's the Beanie Baby kid. And so I basically closed the Beanie Baby business um, and I moved on to actually an email service I started called My Easy Mail. And My Easy Mail was going to be advertising based, which of course there's plenty of these now, free email, Yahoo, Hotmail, Gmail, et cetera. But my easy mail was going to basically be at the time everybody had AOL. And so when you gave out your AOL screen name, anybody could see if you're online, they could see your profile, they could see your age. Um, and so I thought, well, if I create my easy mail, people can give out uh, Cameron at myeasymail.com and that'll forward to your AOL address for free. We just have ads on our website. Um, but then people, you know, you're not giving out your private information and they can't see if you're online and they don't know your actual email address or your screen name at the time. And so my easy mail and success, it was basically supported by advertising. And so close the Beanie Baby business because I don't want to be teased. Um, and at the same time, I was tired of going to the post office every single day. You know, I would come home from school, go to soccer practice. I would have already boxed the 40 orders a day that were going out the night before, you know, at 10 or 11 o'clock, print the label, everything's professional. Um, and then I would go into the post office every single day and uh, write a check for the postage and mail out those orders. Um, but I was tired of doing all that. And so the beauty of my easy mail was that it didn't necessarily make more than the Beanie Baby business, but it replaced that income. And so I was making now three or $4,000 a month from advertising um, using just different advertising networks with me essentially doing no work. So I hired a programmer. I've never built a website. I've never programmed anything, but I've always hired smart people. And um, I hired a programmer to build my easy mail. And basically it was, you know, a one-time expense of building it, which I think at the time was maybe $3,500 and basically one month's income. And then my easy mail sort of just took care of itself and news articles followed. And it was then that I said, well, I need to have more advertising because that's how I'm going to make more money. So I came up with the idea of surfingprizes.com. And what this was, it was going to be an online advertising network, but we were going to share a percentage of our ad revenue with our members. So you basically agreed to download our software program that would sit at the top of your AOL browser, if you will. And it would rotate advertisements. But what our software could see is we could see the website that you were on. So this obviously happens now with cookies and everything else. But we didn't necessarily share the information. But we created a system. Again, my programmers, not me. Um, created a system where um, it could dial in an advertisement based on the website you're on. So if you're on, you know, Dell.com, we could send you a Hewlett Packard ad. If you're on AT&T, we could send you a Verizon ad. Um, and so all of a sudden, we were able to advertise um, to our advertisers, how would you like to advertise on your competitor's website? And we basically could let our advertisers choose just certain websites that they wanted to advertise on. So um, that obviously got us higher ad rates, but our customers agreed to see these ads because they got a percentage of the ad revenue. 
And then it was, and obviously the word pyramid is, is frowned upon, but it was basically a pyramid in that you could refer friends and you would get an override on what they earn too. So not only are we paying the member, but we're also paying you 10% on top of what that other member got. And so that's how it became viral. And we grew to have 200,000 customers in 60 countries. And we were doing now 15 million ads per day um, when I was 15. So 15 million ads. At the time, a million ads, these are banner impressions, would sell for $1,000. So now we're doing 15 million ads a day or $15,000 a day in revenue. Wow. So I'm in the ninth grade doing six figures a week in revenue. And the book you mentioned when I was 15, it was called 15-Year-Old CEO. And there was an article written about my company and the Nikkei, which is the Japanese equivalent of the you know Wall Street Journal and, and Dow Jones stock market there. And so the CEO of his company in Japan read it and he said, we should hire him to be on the board of our company. And so I, I get an email from the CEO and he invites me to Tokyo and I emailed back. These are my dates for spring break that I'm available and uh, I said, you know, I'm a minor, so my dad's going to have to come with me. And of course, obviously, they, they agreed. And basically, two first-class plane tickets for $17,000 show up the next week. And I said, Dad, we're going to Japan. And uh, Wait, we you, went to that's Tokyo. That's when you told him, like, when the tickets yeah. came in? Well, I told him before, <laughs> but he said, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, I mean, <laughs> this is even before the scams that exist today. Um, but he said, I'll, maybe people were more honest back then. But he said, I'll believe it when I see it. And so uh, sure enough, plane tickets came. We went to Tokyo and I joined the board of this company called Future Kids. And um, at that time, I was approached by a bestselling author in Japan who said, I want to ghostwrite your biography book. And I was like, wow, it seems a little early for a biography book, but sounds good. I don't have a book. And so uh, it was called 15-Year-Old CEO. And I went back to Japan when it came out six months later and we did a book tour and it made it to number four on the bestseller list in Japan. And um, it was quite a wild Wow. Amazing. How much it is unbelievable. I'm wondering how much involvement did your parents have at all? Like, were they involved in any of these ideas or was it they all your ideas? Well, so my parents, um, you know, always thought it was cute that, Oh, we've got a business, you know, when I was young. Um, and I would always remind them, you know, again, I got a checking account when I was 10 years old, I would always remind them it's illegal to open mail. That's not addressed to them. So they never saw, you know, my checking statement. Um, I would write my own checks, balance my own checkbook, all those things. And so they literally never really knew. They they knew they were driving me to the post office every day. They saw orders go out. They saw me go to the bank and deposit checks. But they never knew until the end of that year when I made $50,000 when I was 12 that, oh, wow, this is actually, you know, a real thing. Um, and so they were always supportive. Um, my parents, like still to this day, struggle with the email. So they they're not tech savvy. And um, they weren't involved in any of the businesses. They were always supportive until they thought it um, interfered with my education. And so for high school, my parents <laughs> encouraged me, um, forced me to go to a boarding school. And I went to boarding school um, for a year and a half. I came back sophomore year at Christmas break. And I said to my dad, look, I'm not going back. I've got enough money now that I can buy my own place. Uh, you know, of course, I wasn't 18, but I could figure it out. Um, buy my own place if you won't let me come back home. But I'm not saying boarding school because this is actually holding me back from my businesses. And I know you think it interferes with my education, but you know, education stops at some point. Of course, you're always learning, but the classroom stops at some point, and then I'm going to go into the business world. And I'm like, Dad, I'm already in the business world. Um, and so I said, I'll reimburse you all the tuition, and I want to come home. And he said, All right, write me a check for twenty five thousand dollars, and we'll come pick you up. And I was like, I've got the check ready. And they came that Saturday. 
uh, a week after coming back after Christmas break and they picked me up and I left the boarding school and came back to our governor's school program and then went to Virginia Tech. Did they cast a check? (laughs) So that should piss me off. I did not. I mean, who's going to do that? Who's going to cash the check? So um, I never thought they would. And he cashed it that Monday. Uh, Wow. My dad's a business person too, but uh, not not in technology. (laughs) That's awesome. But you could even hear as you're telling the stories of the different businesses that you've created, you can, you can hear what you've learned. You've like learned every step of the way. It's amazing. Well, totally. But I also think that I learned through business biographies that I just started reading at a very early age. Um, And so I always, you know, look, they say, Oh, who do you look up to? I look up to anybody that's more successful than me. Um, And so growing up, that was the Michael Dell, Richard Branson, Donald Trump, uh, Bill Gates, all of those, you know, young success, they all started young and uh, <laughs> all of them, except actually Donald Trump dropped out of college. Bill Gates did. Michael Dell did. Uh, fast forward, Mark Zuckerberg did. Um, so all that's in Richard Branson, again, didn't graduate high school. So I always looked at these people and I said, you know, why not now? Um, and so uh, I did learn so many lessons along the way. Um, and, you know, I think as a young person, you've got a roof over your head. You've got hopefully the food to go in your mouth, you're able to take more risks. Um, and you're not out there, you know, mortgaging your house. You don't have a house. Um, you don't have any bills. You don't have, obviously you don't have a car payment. I can't drive. Um, and so I could take more risk. And I think that always helped too, is that I was always a risk taker. Right. Yeah. I love that way of thinking. I'm going to have my son listen to this podcast mm-hmm. as soon as it comes out. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Broadcast it in all the middle, or all the elementary yeah. schools. <laughs> I know one of the things you've always told me is that I think every single business of yours was successful, right? Was profitable. But yeah. you know, so over, I over time, you've had to have some challenges, right? To overcome. Yeah. And so, um, so all 12 businesses were profitable from age nine to age 21. It sounds like there was one a year. It's not necessarily the case. Some obviously ran many years and some overlapped. Um, they always say, uh, what was your favorite business? Well, at the time, I would always say, what's next? Because what happened with me is I would get bored with a business or I would have a new idea that interests me more than my existing idea. So Beanie Babies, obviously, that was a fad. That was one thing that was a great launching ground printing business. Obviously, I didn't want to grow up and you know have Hallmark. Um, they were all like sort of stepping stones and each one was sort of bigger than the last. But when you when you ask the, you know, what, what was a challenge or what was a failure? Um, for me, those that were, quote unquote, failures. Again, they were profitable, but they were failures because I thought they'd be bigger than they were. So there were a couple along the way where I even said to myself, this is going to be the big one, or this is going to be huge. And um, it it might not have been huge. And so one of those um, was um, a paid. So we had this online advertising network where our members, you know, got to share in the advertising revenue that we got paid. So I came, I took that a step further and I said, what if we created text message ads and so again, this is like during flip phone stage, this is pre iPhone. Um, and so what if you could get a text message based on, you know, you're at the mall already and you're walking by Abercrombie and Fitch. And what if we could send you an Abercrombie text ad? And so I think it was, it was called trueloot.com and it, it just never took off. It made money, but it made, <laughs> I won't say tens of dollars, but it made a lot <laughs> less than what I thought it could do. However, if you, if looking back, that would have been when I was, you know, 15 or 16, I'm 37. So that was 21 years ago. So looking back, the timing was wrong. Right. It was way too early. Mm-hmm. Um, and so way too ahead of you know, your time there. It was, it was just like, 
it was too complicated or it was just the phones weren't ready to be able to do yeah. that. And so the idea was there, but the timing was off. And mm-hmm, so great. there's several examples of those in my different businesses that I talk about in my book that for me, they were failures, but somebody from the outside looking in, they'd be like, wow, that was a profitable business. Never had debt and made money. What more can you ask for? Right. What would you say is the most important piece of advice for someone who wants to start a company? Like what is the number one or two things that you would recommend doing first before doing anything else? So I think the, I think the best piece of advice is really simple one. And, and it's actually the title of the first chapter of my book, but it's called put yourself out there. And it's literally like, you can have all the education in the world. You can have all the connections in the world, but if you don't actually do anything then it doesn't matter. And so I think taking that very first step is the most important. Um, and that, that, that you're going to learn in itself, you know, whether you have a product and see if there's actually a market for it or whether there's not a market for it um, versus, you know, you writing a business plan and the business plan is not worth, you know, the paper it's written on. Um, and so I think put yourself out there. And then the other thing I would follow with is start small. Um, you know, everybody thinks that there's overnight success, you know, oh, wow, Taylor Swift became huge overnight. Obviously, that's not the case at all. She's been 20 plus years doing this now. And I started when I was nine and I started very small. I started with a fourth grade education and $50 to my name. And obviously, you know, I had success and made my first million in high school. But it was because, you know, I started small. You can't start big. If you start big, you're you're probably starting with somebody else's money. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not a good thing because... The whole idea of being an entrepreneur is not answering to somebody else. And if you go out and you raise tons of money, well, now you're an employee. Um, And so I never raised money um, for any of my businesses. And in college, when I left Virginia Tech, I was offered $10 million of venture capital for a company I'd started called Certificate Swap, a gift card marketplace, the first marketplace for buying and selling gift cards. Um, But ultimately, I turned down the offer. And the reason was is my partner and I, we were going to give up 70% ownership in the business. So I was going to have 15%. He was going to have 15%. And so all of a sudden we're now working for the investors and mm-hmm. I was going to have to agree to a salary that was less than what I was making when I was 12. Uh, all the upside <laughs> was going to be on the value of the business, not a salary. And I was like, why, why would we do this? And so ultimately we turned down the offer and walked away. Wow. Yeah. And so obviously like going back to your whole being on the board of this, this business in, in Japan, that probably ignited a lot of publicity, right. For you. And I know this is kind of also fast forwarding because you and Kyle met in college and yeah. Kyle was sharing all these crazy stories of you on, you know, on Oprah, on John Travolta's plane. Like how did that all come? How, how did that stuff happen? So I always learned um, early on, especially with my age, that was obviously the story. And so people um, trust a story and they're skeptical of an ad. So I never spent money advertising any of my businesses. I would always use the power of the press and it was free media attention. And again, people trust a story. And it, you know, I was on the cover of Business Week when I was 15 and fast forward to my first book, in the United States from Simon and Schuster, it was called You Call the Shots. And at the time I was a regular on CNBC and one of Oprah's people saw it. And, um, you know, it wasn't her that called, but her people called my agent. And uh, they said, Oprah's got a new reality show. It's all about charity. And she, um, you know, she's done a ton of casting calls around the country. And of course 
she's probably had millions of women uh, apply to be on the show because it's all about charity and that's obviously her audience. Um, but she doesn't have a business person and she doesn't have, you know, a young guy. And so I was like, well, hey, I, I'd love to talk to him. I'd been approached for The Apprentice season one and uh, I decided against it. And um, I uh, had been approached for a lot of shows by this point. And I'd always said no, because I always wanted to be able to like control the narrative. And obviously on a reality show, you can't control the Certainly narrative. with not but The Apprentice, right? Like you can't control that. The Apprentice, one. you certainly can't yeah. control the narrative. <laughs> um, and so I ultimately wanted to always be, you know, in control of the narrative. But I said, look, it's Oprah, obviously going to be positive. It's for charity. Um, we're going to compete to raise money. Um, you know, the, the difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit company is just a tax filing status. They're still businesses. Uh, charities have to raise money the same way they've got a PL, the same way a for-profit business does. So I said, hey, I could be good at this. And so the show was called Oprah's Big Give. And we aired after Extreme Home Makeover on ABC every Sunday night. Um, we filmed in eight different cities. So we traveled the country. We had a hundred person crew who at the time it was the most expensive reality show ever made. Right. And we had A-list celebrities because, you know, when Oprah calls, everybody answers. So we had, I flew on John Travolta's plane from his home in Orlando to Chicago to where her studio was at Harpo Productions. And Jennifer Aniston was in an episode, uh, Chris Rock's wife, uh, Malak Compton Rock was one of the judges. Um, Jamie Oliver, a celebrity chef, was one of the judges. We had um, so many celebrities. Will Smith's wife, that's in the news, I guess. Jada Pinkett Smith was on one of the episodes. Um, we had so many A-list celebrities. Andre Agassi, uh, just like if you name them, they were probably on the show with us. And so it was an amazing experience. And ultimately, I was on every episode and I was the runner up. And we never knew that we were competing for money. We thought we were just competing for charity, but she surprised the winner uh, with a million dollars and 500,000 was for them. And 500,000 was for them to give to the charity of their choice. And then she surprised uh, myself with a hundred thousand dollars. And again, I wasn't doing this for charity. So the next morning, um, cause it aired Sunday nights. So the next morning on Monday, I went on the Oprah show and I pledged a hundred thousand dollars to Richard Branson's charity, which is all about entrepreneurship and developing countries. And, he invited me to Necker Island and got to spend some time with him. I've been there three times now. Um, and so I got to do these amazing things only because, you know, the book led to CNBC appearances, which led to somebody on her team seeing me. And it's always just been sort of this domino effect of, you know, saying yes to everything, um, you know, has just brought positive situations. Right. And, and you're still giving. Yeah, totally. So I'm, yeah, I'm super involved in a number of charities. I've been on our local school board in Virginia for seven years now, um, promoting career and technical education because, you know, I, the cost of college obviously is a very hot topic now, but it's it's gone up more than any other good or service since 1995. And so you've got kids that are taught that you must get the best grades and you must go to the best school. And oftentimes that means the most expensive school or an out-of-state school. And, um, you know, you see these kids graduating with six figures and, you know, college debt and um, they're, you know, entering the workforce, making 35000 a year. Right. And it's just a death spiral that they a lot of them can never get out of. And so I've always been passionate about career and technical education. And that's what I do with our Roanoke City Schools is promote jobs that you can enter um, straight out of high school and you can build a great career um, and you don't have to go borrow everything. I love that. What, what's next for you? You've done so many things. What's next? So um, today, um, my businesses are actually 
a take on my family's business. So in 1925, my great-grandfather started selling Model T Fords, and he started a Ford dealership in 1938. And um, I'm a fourth-generation Ford dealer uh, back home in Roanoke, Virginia. And uh, I bought out all of our family members from the proceeds of my other businesses. And then I've since bought four more dealerships. So I've got five car dealerships. And then I've got a commercial real estate portfolio of office buildings and dollar generals and uh, random, random tenants. But um, uh, what's next? Um, I, you know, I haven't started my own business uh, in more than 10 years, but I've helped a number of entrepreneurs with businesses that I've invested in through just private equity deals. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of like um, being on the outside and the consultant and sort of, you know, uh, preaching from a 30,000 foot view where I can give sort of input, but then I don't have to be in the weeds. It's quite nice. Um, and so that's, I'm kind of loving it. It gives me the freedom to, uh, to travel. I do a lot of travel. I was on 200 planes last year and um, yeah. So I've kind of got the best of both worlds. I can sort of dabble as much in business as I want. And then I can also, you know, sort of live the life I want. That's great. Are you going to make your kids go to college? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> so, so I don't have kids yet. However, you know, if I did, we're still 18 years away from that. So I would like to think that college is going to look very different 18 years from now. And I don't know if that's for better or for worse. Right. Um, but I think I will definitely get them started young if they're interested in business. Um, just because, you know, 99% of the population is either going to work for themselves or work for somebody else. And most likely it's going to be work for somebody else. And so, uh, you know, I knew I don't have any talent and I wasn't going to be an athlete or anything else. And so business is where I was going to end up. You must've been an old soul. Like, you know, right. you're I'm just fine. like aware. Yeah. Cause I think about your average nine-year-old. I mean, just reading a book in general is like a big task and not, I mean, you were reading business books, biographies. I was reading business biographies. Yeah. Age of nine. And I was also, you know, reading business magazines, um, Fortune, Forbes, Newsweek, Business Week as a kid. And, you know, now I think you asked the question about if I was going to send my kids to college, you can get a college education. You can get an MBA for free with the information that's available on the Internet. You can teach yourself anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like I taught myself business growing up. And then at the same time, I was doing it, not just learning about it. And so I feel like obviously you learn more by doing. And, um, I learned so many lessons, um, that, uh, you know, that, that my dad always, you know, he always, he's a very big proponent of education, even though I dropped out of college. And he always says, you can lose your money, you can lose your wife, you can lose your house. Um, but an education is something that never can be taken away from you. And, and that's true. Um, I just got my education outside of the classroom. Right. You got it in a different way. You still have an education. Right. Totally. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure I could test out and, you know, an MBA class right now. Um, sure. And I even thought I was like, well, well that'd be fun. Just go to a 13 month fast track program. And then I was like, man, it's kind of just a waste of time. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, right. You'd probably be correcting the questions on the test. Be like, no, this isn't accurate. You know, well, so one of the reasons <laughs> why I dropped out of Virginia Tech was um, they had let me take an advanced business class when I came to Virginia Tech as a freshman. And inside my textbook, I didn't do the reading one night and I was sitting next to my girlfriend's sister and she said, did you do the reading last night? And I was like, no, why? And she said, because you're in the textbook. And I was like, what? She's like, turn to page 168. And I talk about this in my book, but sure enough, when I was in business week, 
uh, when I was 15. At the time, it was owned by McGraw-Hill. Well, McGraw-Hill also does textbooks. Mm -hmm. So they had repurposed the story from when I was 15 into this textbook when I'm 18 or 19. um, And it was a chapter in entrepreneurship. And so sure enough, they pulled my story. And so I literally was like, okay, wait, now I'm I'm paying for this? (laughs) And so... You know, my whole idea of college, though, was I'm going to use this as my stomping ground to recruit talent. I'm going to find the cheapest programmers. I'm going to find the best web developers. I'm going to do all these things. Um, And uh, sure enough, I was like, okay, yeah, you know, maybe I don't need to be in college. And so that's when I dropped out. Right. Yeah. And and also, I wanted to fly under the radar. I had already, you know, done so much media attention. I wanted to, like, sort of start my life over where people didn't have a preconceived notion of me or my businesses, whereas they would, you know, being local when I grew up. And so uh, that all went out the window when you're in your own textbook. And so now, you know, the professor is calling on me, you know, every single class or any kind of question, if she doesn't get a hand that goes up, you know, I'm her default fallback. And so um, that was fun. But at the same time, I was ready to move on. Why are you paying for that? Right. You're like literally teaching everybody else. Right. Anyone in the That's where I came along because, you know, <laughs> I didn't read textbooks either, so I had no idea who Cameron was. He was like, oh, good. You don't Fire. you don't know of my past, so let's be right. I had no idea who he was. <laughs> and that was that was great. And then when I left Virginia Tech, they offered me their first ever scholarship for entrepreneurship. And I was like, I'm not leaving because of the cost. I'm leaving because the opportunity cost of being in a classroom for four years I feel out there, I feel like there's other entrepreneurs out there that are going to have a four year leg up on me if I'm sort of, you know, out of the game. And so right. I was like, I've got to keep doing my businesses. Yeah. No, I love that. Oh my gosh. This has been so fun. I love, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Especially with a drink uh-huh. in our hands. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need to we'll save that for another time. Yes, yes we do. Um, but thank you so much, Cameron. Thank you, Kyle, for being on here. I love the stories. I mean, you're you're very inspirational. I'm completely oh, well, thanks, inspired. Thanks, Stephanie and Ashley yes. and Kyle. Great hanging out with you this morning. I know. Yeah, it was so fun. This was fun. Until next time, babes, live bold and boss up. This is a Rock Stops here with Rock Riley Quick Fix on Radio Influence. He is a legend. 40-some years he's been doing FSU basketball and baseball, play-by-play. He's been doing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers games in the NFL since 1989. He's 77 years old. Wait till you hear the energy that he has. He's still at the top, the one, the only Gene Deckerhoff. What you saw in Bobby Bowden on TV, in the newspaper, on the radio is exactly what you get when he wasn't in front of a camera or a microphone. Bobby Bowden was the most genuine man I have ever been around. I don't think I heard Bobby utter a swear word in the 34 years I worked with him. Uh, maybe once or twice when he missed a six-foot putt. But he, he was a man, a, a very spiritual man. He never met somebody that he wouldn't say, hey, buddy, hey, gal, hey, buddy, hey, gal. Shake hands, pat you on the back. It didn't matter whether he'd won a game or lost a game. And uh, Bobby was the real deal. You know, in my career as a broadcaster, I've been very fortunate, number one, to, to be in this business. And it's not a business for me. It's, 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 a, it's a blast. But to have worked with Bobby Bowden and Tony Dungy are the two highlights of my career. 
forget the wins and the losses, but to be around two human beings, whether they're coaches or administrators, school teachers, police officers, firemen, the two, I think, the greatest human beings that I have ever been around. The Rock stops here with longtime radio and TV personality. Rock Riley is found anywhere you find podcasts and radioinfluence.com.